0: Well, happy New Year, Glenn. Happy New Year, Neil. Welcome back to the Broom Closet. Here we are again. Can't wait to get started. I wasn't doing anything, anyways. So okay. So it's a new year, mm-hmm. and we're we're all looking for fresh starts and new exciting projects. But uh, it's also a good time to take stock and uh, to kind of revisit some some issues and stories that we've uh, gone through. Mm-hmm. And um, one that comes to mind is last month you talked to Counselor Kristen Wong Tam about the armory situation in Toronto. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, we, we talked to Councillor Wong Tam about... Uh, there, there was a call to open the armories, uh, the Moss Park armories, uh, as a sort of emergency space for uh, street-involved people. It was a devastatingly cold... Um, cold uh, sort of Christmas season uh, yeah. so what's happened since then uh, since we talked to the councillor is uh, there was a massive uh, push from uh, frontline workers from street involved people uh, and from the media to to make this happen to open the armories uh, and sort of tried their best to get people out of the cold and it, it did work uh, the the city uh, made an agreement with uh, the federal government and, and the armories were opened uh, so that space was available uh, as well um, just recently uh, Kathy Crow, a street nurse who was kind of a major advocate for for this uh, pushed open the armories. She was uh, just named to the Order of Canada, so that's very exciting. Congratulations to her! Yeah, and uh, so just wanted to update people about what what's happened since since we had that conversation and. Uh, it, uh, it occurs to me that uh, we have a, a couple loose threads from uh, the episodes last year that mm-hmm. uh, I think it'd be good to just kind of uh, retrace our steps and, and follow up on so people know uh, what's happened since then. Okay. Well, it sounds good to me. Do you want to start us off? I would love to because I don't get the opportunity to do this very often. Uh, i just like to say, this is Spacing Radio. Excellent. <laughs> We are back in the broom closet at 401 Richmond Street West, Toronto, Ontario. I'm Glenn Bowerman, and you're listening to the official podcast of Spacing Magazine. Coming up on the show, we have the second 2017 recipient of the Jane Jacobs Prize, and we speak to Saskatoon Mayor Charlie Clark about urbanism in a mid-sized Saskatchewan city. But first, last summer we brought you a report from the 10-year tent city in Vancouver. The camp was established in part as a protest and in part by necessity in the face of the housing crisis in that city. Since then, residents relocated to a second site called Sugar Mountain. This location was also dismantled, with the city promising construction of small modular housing units to address the residents' needs. Ethel Witte is the Director of Homelessness Services for the City of Vancouver. We talked to her about tent city residents and the next steps for helping street-involved people find stability. Stand (laughs) by.
1: So the Sugar Mountain Tent City um, was occupied by a small number of people up until uh, about uh, just a couple of weeks ago, and and people were asked to move and did move. Um, into other accommodation or shelters, um, I certainly moved off site to make room for temporary modular housing. And the temporary modular housing for homeless people uh, um, in a housing first—you know—being operated in housing first model. Um, we're just—we'll probably get the first building open in the second week of February. There's going to be 600 units all over the city, uh, different buildings all over the city. Um, And this is a partnership between BC Housing and the City of Vancouver. It's it's probably the most, you know, the the biggest breakthrough we've had in a long time in terms of actually being able to provide for that specifically for the homeless population and and specifically at a rate of rent that is at the shelter rate. Uh, I mean, people will be renting those buildings, but they'll be able to afford to do that, mm-hmm. um, so it's it's a really big deal uh, that we're getting this, and um, you know, not not easy to accomplish um, to to get these uh, to find the sites to get them ready to get the housing on it and and uh, get people in it. But it's pretty exciting uh,
0: for our listeners. Just so they they have a picture of exactly what these modular housing units are. Can can you sort of describe the the basic construction?
1: Well, they're uh prefabricated obviously off site mm. um and and they're they're um Above ground, so you know you you get to build at a much uh, quicker rate than you do when you're building a structure that will be there for a much longer period of time. Um, although these and the, and the sites are the, the the sites are available for five to possibly ten years, depending on the site. Uh, and um, so they're they're about they're anywhere. There's two different sizes. They're either um, 250 or or 300. 30 square feet, um, which isn't very big, but uh, can be pretty okay if you have your own washroom, which they do, and your own little kitchenette. And uh, people, the city uh, did one just over a year ago, a 40-unit building um, of temporary modular housing. And, you know, the people who are there, of course, are for the most part very, very happy with that housing.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, there there was some pushback though i saw in uh, an area called Mar- marpole um, yes where the government had to uh, the, the the city had to file an injunction to to get protesters to uh, remove themselves from the site so that they could actually build this housing uh, can you talk a bit about the pushback
1: well the community expressed concerns um about uh safety issues um, and, you know, having this kind of building in their neighborhood, um, that one group of people in the neighborhood express those concerns. There are other groups in the neighborhood. Uh, there's a, a wonderful student group, for instance, high school kids who are uh, very supportive and wanting to do whatever they can to support people when they move in. And, and I believe that the people who are not supportive are are, you know, have genuine fears and concerns um, but that we, we've done many of this kind these kinds of buildings across the city mm-hmm. for years and what usually happens is you know people are very concerned before it gets built and then they figure out that it isn't really going to be a threat to them and uh, in some cases become a great advocate for and friend to the people who live there. So I I'm I'm pretty sure that will happen in this community. I think there's lots of compassion and goodwill in this community as well, and I think that we'll see that uh, more of that once we actually have people there and in the building.
0: What does your uh, office though do uh, proactively to try and allay these fears uh, before you get this sort of uh, "not in my backyard" kind of pushback?
1: Well, in this case, we did um, three. Uh, community open houses for, really, but the, the last one didn't really get to continue it, but, um, so big open houses with, you know, boards where the community can just come and, and find out everything about how the building is built and, um, you know, how, what the timelines are and how it's going to look. Um, and, uh, we also did some presentations, like PowerPoint presentations to smaller groups on those nights. Um, we, have gone out to stakeholder groups and held meetings and, you know, we, we try pretty hard to get as much uh, information as we can into the hands of the community.
0: And do you find, you know, some people who uh, who might be afraid of the impact on their community uh, that, you know, once they have a little bit more information, they, they walk away feeling, uh, uh, feeling more satisfied with, uh, you know, modular housing projects, that kind of thing?
1: Some people do. I definitely saw have seen that happen. Once people get more information, they feel better. Um, some people um, don't respond to that kind of information. Mm-hmm. They need to see the thing in operation before they're convinced. Right. That's just... We all have our different way of taking in information
0: and processing it. At the Sugar Mountain site, uh, the the Alliance Against Displacement uh, they had a demonstration where they they made uh, a list of demands. Uh, they they called for ten thousand emergency modular housing units. Um, they asked for policies against uh, demovictions and reno, renovictions. Uh, that is sort of things that building owners sometimes use uh, as a way to, uh, you know, get people out and flip the property it can happen. Uh, and uh, as well they they wanted the emergency shelters closed is what I read, and I was wondering if you could explain uh, why they feel that way as so many people would uh, you know rather do anything than, than be in a shelter
1: i am not, I can only guess that if they were calling for them to be closed, they were saying that they need to be replaced with housing you know I mean certainly those temporary shelters are not adequate housing there's there's no doubt about it. Now, they're full all the time, and, and, and we, it seems like we can't Open enough of them, mm-hmm. you know they they're full all the time, and we still have people on the street. There are people who are homeless who will not go to a shelter, yeah. and uh, the the reasons for that are are because they are uncomfortable in that environment. You're the temporary winter shelters. I mean, there's a, there's a wide range of shelters. Some are much much higher end than that, uh, but these temporary sh- winter shelters, they're mats on the floor. Mm-hmm. You're sleeping, you know, two and a half feet away from someone else who you don't know. Uh, if someone even has a bad experience where they are, you know, get their things stolen or get assaulted, they're never going to go back to a shelter again. You know, it only takes one time for most people before they say, "I'd rather be uh, in a tent somewhere." Uh, that's that's understandable. But that that to to say that. The shelter providers who are providing those temporary shelters are not going, doing a good job. I don't think it's really fair with, with you know, the situation as it stands, where there isn't enough housing for everybody, and we're just trying to get people off the street, especially in the winter. Um, it, the, those services need to be there. But I, I couldn't agree more Um uh that we need more housing <laughs> that, right. that we shouldn't need those shelters. Um
0: where where by and large did the residents of the the Sugar Mountain uh tent city uh where, where did they end up being displaced to for the time being?
1: Well in the end there there was <laughs> number at Sugar Mountain um it, it, you know we've we have um relocated folks from much much bigger encampments in the last um years mm-hmm. but this this turned out to be a very small number at the end um and so some of them um were found uh rooms in of course uh, SRO rooms probably um and others offered shelter so it, you know it's it's not that they were we We didn't have temporary modular housing at that point mm-hmm. to um to we didn't necessarily have the kind of housing that is your basic decent one room with a washroom is so basic you know and people people's um people are so humble in their demands really in what they want and and to live is just clean, safe shelter with a private bathroom.
0: Ethel, I, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Thank you, Glenn. Okay, okay. all bye Next up, Kofi Hope is a busy man. We were unable to meet him at the Jane Jacobs Prize Gala last year, where we met his co-recipient, and Gloger of the East Scarborough storefront, because he was at a World Leaders Summit in Chile. You get the impression Kofi never stops, his work as executive director of the Careers Education Empowerment Center for Young Black Professionals, as well as his long history of community work, earned him the nod for the Jane Jacobs Prize, which Spacing Magazine stewards. And we reached him by phone. First, uh, Kofi, I wanted to congratulate you on uh, winning the Jane Jacobs Prize.
2: Thank you. Yeah, it's an honor to receive
0: it. And, uh... I was wondering, to to get the ball rolling, if you could just tell me a little bit about the Careers Education Empowerment for Young Black Professionals. Yeah, so C
2: is uh, a center for young black professionals, as the name says. But, I mean, the heart of it is really trying to build a community of care and support to increase the social capital and economic opportunities black youth who, you know, some would say are, are farthest from the shore when you think about the labor market. Mm-hmm. So folks who've been out of work for a protracted amount of time, who've been in conflict with the law, who suffer from housing insecurity, kind of multiple and compounding uh, barriers and, you know, an overall theme of kind of poverty and exclusion. And we put together programs and ongoing service and support to move those folks from where they're at, being unemployed and underemployed, towards starting the pathway to a career.
0: And uh you talk about when you're when you're working with these people that you're looking for uh powerful transformative moments. Can can you describe those moments?
2: Yeah, I mean, those get built into the programming. A lot of it centers around the retreat that we do at the start of the program where um I do some work that uh, Professor Marshall Gantz has created at Harvard around public narrative and power stories, and I've adapted that. And we do power stories together around a bonfire. We do the workshop, and I really talk to people about the idea that people are telling a story about you all the time. You may have been told stories by teachers of what you couldn't achieve, maybe even by parents, by friends, but the first part of your own personal empowerment is is trying to tell your own story on your own terms. And, you know, it's one of the powerful moments um, on that retreat is everyone gathering around a bonfire after a day of self-reflection and work together and everyone, including staff, sharing a power story and then taking paper chains that we create where we write down barriers holding us back in our lives. And they get thrown into the fire as well to kind of symbolize um, what we're leaving behind us. And, you know, having heard over a hundred stories now around that fire, there's been all kinds of powerful moments where people really had a chance outside of their context to reflect on why do I want to do a program like this? Um, and moments continue like that, you know, exposure trips, chances to meet mentors. Um, when people have had the opportunity to collaboratively run activities or events together, you know, you see these kind of powerful aha moments all the time, which are really about people looking back at themselves in a different light, maybe seeing something about themselves or what they can do or where they could go that they didn't believe was there before.
0: And and you talk about barriers. Uh, can you can you describe some of the barriers that you, you come up against in your work with C, uh, specifically in, in a Toronto context?
2: Yeah, well, I mean... <laughs> And, 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 and they're specific to Toronto, but they're general to to folks who are, you know, in marginalized communities everywhere, I think, in the world. I mean, trauma is one of the kind of defining narratives, and that takes many forms, many people's trauma around um, violence, gun violence or crime. Uh, trauma of incarceration is a pretty common theme at, you know, multiple young men. In our program, who have spent months and months in solitary confinement, and so I've been kind of, you know, state-sanctioned torture and Mm -hmm. the trauma that has come from that. Um, Along with the different, and there's educational trauma is a huge theme of people who just were streamed out, expelled, or excluded in their educational system. And beyond those different traumas that are there, just, you know, the issues and struggles that come with trying to survive in the city. So housing insecurity is an increasing issue, people just not being able to afford a place to stay, couch surfing, living in shelters, um, You know, having young children in this city, You know, the struggle for daycare, or simply just to provide for those kids and create a stable environment, issues with children's aid society. Um, those are all pieces, and just a general lack of social capital.
0: On the other hand, working with these uh, co- communities, um, what would you say are the hidden assets?
2: I mean, there's tons of assets. I mean, despite all of these barriers, the people come to our programs have huge amounts of resiliency. They're survivors, mm-hmm. you know. To to, think of one young man talked about what, you know what it took to survive six months in solitary confinement and <laughs> keep your sanity and keep together or people who've had to survive, you know, on the streets or sleeping in stairwells or, you know, in in group homes and all of these experiences both bring trauma, but also create wells of resiliency and create survival skills. But a lot of what we do is try to see how do we transform those skills that helped you in kind of, you know, the most desperate of situations and, and and tap them and maybe refine them or channel that energy in a redirected way to allow you to thrive in more of what we call mainstream settings. Yeah,
0: and and, and I want to talk about that because I mean you're you're a city builder. This is a podcast about city building. I think oh, we're talking a lot in, in the city building sort of environment about um for all the best intentions, uh not not everyone is receiving the benefits of these kind of high minded uh city city building projects um and so we're just now as a city starting to uh, openly talk about systematic racism and and the kind of barriers that i think you you work against uh, with c but uh can you talk a little bit about um you know uh, updating uh, the concept of city building and urbanism to to really uh to really look at uh, you know the sort of equity within that field
2: yeah i mean it's kind of like you know I always look at any question with this, you know, idea of, well, to what end, you know, and to what end the city? And to me, the end of the city is not to serve the city itself. It's to serve human beings and our urban spaces and from the level of planning to, you know, decisions on on, on transit or housing or just, you know, where a park is put, all the different parts of civic life, engagement with our municipal government you know, we, I think it's really grounding it as the end goal has to be around creating opportunity and dignity and a chance for a flourishing life to all citizens. And, you know, I think people subscribe to that narrative at, at the high level, but part of it, because we live in such a divided city and an increasingly divided city, you know, people, you know, many well-meaning folks who hold the reins in these debates about how our city grows and evolves. Don't fully understand the way in which, you know, decisions leave people on the outside. Mm-hmm. Um and the way in which, you know, it's amazing to put millions of dollars into our harbor front and developing it and the infrastructure there and the public infrastructure there. But maybe not appreciate that there's many folks in the city who've never gone to the harbor front. Right. And would never even think of it. And and that's simply because they don't feel a part of of life downtown, that their neighborhoods, you know, form the kind of limits of their lived experience. It's not easy to get downtown and people don't feel welcome or included. And so that, you know, there's a reason that we had a populist kind of revolt in Toronto over the last couple of municipal elections, because people played out those. Uh, class, race, and geographic divisions. And so I think the new urbanism really needs to think about equity and how does every service or built space promote equity. And and part of it, and it's simple, is just people have to be at the table. Mm-hmm. People have to be at the table in shaping uh, how we create the city. Um, but that's easier said than done because it doesn't work and just holding a public consultation and inviting the same usual suspects to come. It doesn't work to just asking people to deputize at City Hall. There has to be a much larger effort around engaging and tapping into the ideas of those, especially those on the margins, if we want to actually create solutions. Otherwise, it's just a bunch of well-meaning middle-class people coming up with ideas that may or may not land.
0: Mm-hmm. And Kofi, I'd like to talk a, a little bit about you. Uh, just you—you you are the award recipient, and, and this is a, l- a little bit about you. So, uh, I think I find it interesting. I mean, you're a Rhodes Scholar. You, you went to Oxford. Uh, I think a lot of people uh, would take a different path uh, if 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 they had the education and you know the sort of connections that you did. Uh, you know, maybe a private practice, some, something like that. Uh, it, you, you came back home, and, and you worked in your community. Uh, can can you tell me a bit about that and, and what drives you?
2: Yeah, and I mean, you know, I look at kind of my career, my work is broadly being grounded around the idea of social justice and the fight for that. And whether it's C or whether it's in different roles in the future or whether it's the work I did as a student um, in Canada or the work I was doing for my PhD, they're all kind of defined by that narrative of uh, fighting for social justice and equity, and using privilege and power that I'm able to gain um, to open up doors for others and to you know create access points. And so, you know, to me, um, that's always just been the driving piece. And I've always asked myself, how do I use the privilege I gain, and how do I kind of rationalize that, um, not by falling into it guilt or shame, because it's very possible and many people can feel really bad that, oh, I've you know, i had these great opportunities and others haven't. Um, and for me, it's accepting, well, I have had amazing opportunities and I've been very blessed from the moment I've been born in the family, I was born into the country, the context, but you can't change that. But what you can do is use that power and privilege um, to kind of make a more equitable world. And so that's what I've always seen as being a driving force. And so for me, you know, coming back, yeah, I had choices, whether I wanted to go to a more global context or stay in the UK or or pursue a variety of opportunities. But along with the ethics and values, I really love this city and what's happening in this city and the way in which we have a multicultural generation that is increasingly um, becoming leaders in all different sectors, and all different areas, in which we have a dynamic city that's growing and building in its global profile, and that's something I wanted to be a part of, and was excited to come back and be a part of, and, you know, building this organization from the ground up, when United Way asked me to help with a project that was troubled before C started, um just seemed like a great way to kind of get back and and immerse myself in the life of the city and really play a a crucial role that I think few people were situated to do.
0: Okay, well, Kofi, I want to congratulate you again for the award and uh, thank you for your work.
2: No problem. My pleasure.
0: Finally, we bring you Saskatoon Mayor Charlie Clark. We met up with him last September in Winnipeg during the annual Canoe Summit, and we featured part of our discussion in the Racist Roots of Canadian Cities episode. Here, we have a broader discussion about urbanism and all things Saskatoon. So first, uh, you were elected on what can be considered a a sort of progressive urbanist uh, ticket in what is sometimes thought of as a conservative stronghold. Um, How do you communicate the the ideas of urbanism to uh, people who may be new to them, or or they may be... uh, initially hostile to it at first well i
3: think in saskatoon there is an understanding that we have to decide what kind of city we want to be in order to make sure that we are continue to be an attractive uh, and competitive city into the future and um, it's a city that over time Uh, has had a feeling at at certain times, especially in the 90s and early 2000s, that a lot of the young people were leaving and that uh, we we were in danger of of losing all that talent and potential. And so for me, it was important to try and make the connection for the whole community that uh, trying to build a vibrant uh, city that has great quality of life, that has, uh, you know, an art scene, a culture scene, has, um, w- ways for people to get, a- convenient choices for people to get around, whether it's cycling, walking, transit. Um, and all those things are, are actually fundamental to a place like Saskatoon being competitive because, frankly, we're pretty far away from a lot of places and we have a cold winter. So we even, in some ways, have to work extra hard to build quality of life in order to o- overcome some of those shortcomings. The other thing I did was start out by talking about the economics. And we put up a billboard early in the campaign that, uh, that laid out th- that... Um, that we could save, according to one of our own city reports, uh, half a billion dollars in infrastructure if we uh, started to grow in a more balanced way, if we reduced the amount of urban sprawl we had just in our just in transportation infrastructure and uh, and so you know, i think it 's important always to try and link the economics of of uh, of a more uh, urbanist approach to building a city and the the need to to do it as a way of, of remaining competitive so Those are the ways I tried to reach out to some of the more conservative sort of minded people or people who thought to try and break down the idea that it's sort of a car versus bike or a pro development versus anti development or or a down uh, you know a, a suburban versus urban divide that we were trying to promote rather rather that it's a vision for the whole
0: city to succeed Mm-hmm. And when you talk about combating sprawl, you're, you're talking about slow growth infill, that kind of thing, mid-rise?
3: Yeah, really. I mean, fundamentally, it's using the land that we already um, have. That's already within the existing city boundaries where you already have infrastructure and, and uh, a lot of the brownfield development, a lot of the surface parking lots. Uh, we also have a huge amount of land around our university in Saskatoon that's agriculture right now, um, and it's but it's really almost in the heart of the city. Um, and so the question becomes, you know, is it better to uh, use up land that's in the form of agriculture in the middle of the city and have development and, and residential and, and other things right adjacent to where the roads already are or just keep eating up farmland on the outside edge where you have to keep, you know, uh, building overpasses and, and uh, new fire halls and all these things in order to, to, to reach the these further distant ways. To me, it just makes sense that you use up the land that's already there. So, yeah, it would be slow growth. I mean, what the form of the growth is is something that we're still sorting out in Saskatoon. But I think... Um increasingly there's I think a real merit in looking at that mid rise kind of uh, approach and and especially uh, especially in a city and a market like ours um and also we want to be as innovative as we can in terms of the design of that in terms of of looking at sustainability and in terms of that uh uh the development that goes forward. So uh that's right.
0: And uh, you mentioned it, uh, part of this approach is is uh, sort of alleviating the strains put on the transit system. Uh Saskatoon is maybe considered a, a car-centric culture right now. It is. it is a car-centric culture. <laughs>
3: it's 90 about 90% single occupant uh a vehicle as as our modal split about four percent transit so um, yeah it's fair to say that 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 the vast majority of people are, are getting around by themselves in their vehicles
0: and are you having conversations within the city about a, a potential I mean probably far down the line but sort of rapid transit system
3: well no yeah right now we're we're actually we've we've got a uh, a project. Uh, to design uh, a bus rapid transit uh, network um, built around with transit villages um, at the at the end of nodes and and we 're already in the process of um, <clears throat> turning some of our main routes into higher frequency corridors uh, that that give people more convenience on 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 some of those key areas so we 've been in discussion about this for some time what we 're not really close to I would say at this point is like a light rapid transit uh, approach we've by all the evidence we don't have the densities or, or like you know likely to be able to achieve the ridership to make that make sense right. and uh, like many other mid-sized cities looking at, at BRT as a way of, uh, of better utilizing what we're already uh, doing with our transit system and, and trying to give people more and more, like, the experience of, of light rapid transit uh, using, using transit buses. So it's, a, it's an uphill battle in Saskatoon. We, we talk about, uh, as we try to attract more people to our city, We've been uh, talking about the fact that in Saskatoon you have a two-song commute to get to work. You can pretty much get to work by, you know, by listening to your two favorite songs on the radio. Um, so it's still a small city where 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 the traffic congestion is not, you know, uh, really a big hindrance to people's, uh, you know, days. That it's it's very easy to get around um, and it's low density. So so retrofitting it to make transit compelling. Um, is uh, is going to be a challenge you know but uh, as time goes on, um, we are seeing some some opportunities where there 's low hanging fruit and some some key constituents that we think you know we can grow the transit ridership for and, and hopefully hopefully get that modal split up and and make it more convenient for the
0: people who do use it and i imagine you're looking as well at uh, active transportation sort of expanding cycling and pedestrian Yeah, thing. we
3: have an amazing city for cycling. It's flat. <laughs> There's only the only time you go up hills are when you're going uh, over the bridges or into the river valley and and we actually have quite wide streets. So we, we actually have a fairly high uh, portion of Cyclists right now, I mean, not like Vancouver or Copenhagen or those places, but across the country, uh, we're up around 3%, I think. And I don't think that measures at all the university population that really, you know, that, uh, that if you go to the university, you see a, a high uh, number of, of bicycles and the high school students who are cycling to school and all of that kind of thing. Um, and we have an active transportation now for the city as a whole that we 're moving on implementing it 's a battle you know there's uh there's there 's still controversy about it. I was called bike lane charlie in the uh, <laughs> in the campaign by some of the more conservative radio uh, talk show hosts uh to try and we have separated bike lanes downtown that uh, people still are grumbling about but um there is a generational shift happening in our city, and and so I, I think from what I'm seeing, there's more and more of the voice of the next generation that's saying this is the kind of city we want, and that's helping to create the um, political space to to uh, be able to implement some of these uh, kinds of things that some people see as a change or a threat to the existing way that, that, that we do things, uh, and we have to create the conditions where people can see that this isn't going to take away from the quality of life of the car driver or that type of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it does provide some more safety, more convenience, more choice. And, and it state it makes a statement about what kind of city we are too.
0: And I'd like to ask you about the housing first initiative. Uh, housing is something that every Canadian city struggles with, uh, but uh, you seem to have had some success. Uh, a lot of housing ad- advocacy groups have, have sort of uh, given a, you know, good marks to this, this program. Oh,
3: in Saskatoon? Yeah. Good. Um, well we 've learned from a lot of other cities uh, for sure yeah, you know we what we brought Tim Richter in about six years ago when he was the executive director of the calgary homelessness foundation and he 's now uh, i think he 's still the director of the canadian homelessness foundation um, and uh, it just makes sense you know to to take have a paradigm shift in a community and recognize that uh, you need to look at what it takes to help successfully keep people in housing if you're going to then be able to address other issues uh, like addictions uh, you know mental health uh, trauma, um, you know, what, depression, suicide, whatever those things might be, and um, and in Saskatoon prior to the last five years, that wasn't the case. People were really just bouncing around the system, falling through the cracks without, without an intentional system of support to try and and get into housing and keep housing. Uh, So I give a huge amount of credit to the United Way in Saskatoon, to an organization called SHIP, the Saskatoon Housing Initiatives Partnership, uh, to some business leaders in the community who have embraced this approach to... Uh, uh, the health region and and the police service and others have all come together. And and we have the Sassoon Tribal Council and the uh, Sassoon Indian Métis Friendship Center have played a really fundamental role in in helping to uh, get this coordinated system working better. We still have a long way to go. We uh, have not managed to get the provincial government to really... Um, be as engaged as I, I think they could be and should be in order to make sure that the social services, the uh, ministry of health, the ministry of justice, uh, that their that their approach kind of aligns and 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 sort of supports this kind of work, as opposed to becoming a, a hindrance because of silos and and uh, and policies that uh, can actually get in the way of of successful approaches to housing first. So um, yeah, it, it's good that we're being recognized uh i think everybody in saskatoon would say we still have
0: quite a bit of work to do and the basic conceit is that uh you know you you find people a place to live before you deal with all the other bureaucracy of uh you know going through what can sometimes be a labyrinthine uh, <laughs> program of, of social programs
3: yeah i mean from my from from my understanding you have a, a case man the fundamental part is you have a case management team it's tied to an organization that actually develops a direct relationship with landlords, and you get a pool of, of market housing. It's not actually doesn't require uh, you know necessarily a lot of new shelter housing or even supported housing, although that still can play a and does play a role. But you 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 can use market housing in many cases. But in the old system, individuals would go to their social worker, and the social worker would say, "Well, in order to get." Uh, social assistance, you need to get housing and then the, the individual would go around and round to landlords, they'd have no references they, you know, and, and they, if they had mental health or addiction issues or other things, they'd get into a house um, and in so many cases, something would go wrong, you know, people would come over, there'd be a party, there'd be noise, there'd be whatever, they'd get kicked out, they'd be back on the street, and they're just going around this cycle. Um, and there isn't anybody kind of working with them to kind of help make sure that they don't fall into those patterns over and over again. In a housing-first model, you get the, the housing identified by linking an organization with a landlord. You have people who come in and who, who are supported by this case management team, who come in and check in on them once a week and see if there's food in the fridge and see if they're taking their medications and and work with the landlords. And if something goes wrong, there's problem-solving as opposed to just, you know, the the, the cycle just, can, you know, people getting kicked out and starting over again. And so the, you try and establish that level of stability so that then somebody can move on to other forms of treatment and, and other things. And so we have seen quite many individuals... In some cases, even go back into the workforce and and other things as a result of having that more systematic kind of support. so you treat it as a health issue, not an issue of laziness or criminality or you know all the homelessness you, you understand that 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 people need almost you know a, a sort of a supportive treatment model in order to uh to to get back on their feet and and uh and that's the that's the basic approach that that uh, housing first takes
0: and that's the show thanks so much for listening if you like this episode please tell your trolley bus driver local entrepreneurs and your seatmates at the next saskatoon blades game as always, a like, share, subscribe, or rating on iTunes makes it easier for new listeners to find a podcast. Help spread the word. I make this podcast with Neil Hinchley, who composes our music, and you can find that music on SoundCloud at track82. That's all spelled out. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or tips, you can find us on Twitter at Spacing Radio, that's all one word, or you can email me at glennbowerman at spacing.ca. That's G-O-Y-N-B-O-W-E-R-M-A-N at spacing.ca. Visit our website at spacing.ca or visit our city store at 401 Richmond Street West in Toronto. In the meantime, our latest sports theme issue is on newsstands now, so go grab a copy. Cheers. Cheers.